London Calling. London Walks Connecting. London Walks here with today's London Fix. Story time, history time. It's September 7th. Time to get back in the saddle. Wasn't going to miss this one. It's the date that did the trick. September 7th, 1940. Extremely important day in London history. The day hell came out of the London skies. The day the mass air attacks on London began. And I think we'll go firsthand with this one. Hand over to the great American reporter, Edward R. Murrow. The very least you can say is, for once, I'm not going to have a problem with the accent. At the time, Edward R. Murrow was 32 years old. He couldn't have been more American. A mixture of Scottish, Irish, English, and yes, German descent. He'd been in London for three years, working for CBS. Nothing brought the war home to Americans, like Murrow's live, terse, highly descriptive broadcasts from London during the Blitz. After the war, of course, he went back to the United States and career-wise didn't break stride. His reporting and commentary was brilliant and historically important. His See It Now show that criticized McCarthyism and the Red Scare led to the political downfall of the rabid, rabble-rousing senator from Wisconsin who wrought so much havoc. One critic described that June 15, 1953 broadcast as a landmark in television and a milestone in the cultural life of the 50s. Edward R. Murrow left us in 1965. He was in good company. 1965 was the year Winston Churchill died. The Edward R. Murrow broadcast, I'm now going to run up the flag of the London Walks podcast, was aired on September 8, 1940. It began, as always, with Edward R. Murrow's signature opening. This is London. Yesterday afternoon, it seems days ago now, I drove down to the east end of London, the East India Dock Road, Commercial Road, through Silvertown, down to the mouth of the Thames Estuary. It was a quiet and almost pleasant trip through those streets running between rows of working-class houses with the cranes, the docks, the ships, and the oil tanks off on the right. We crossed the river and drove up on a little plateau, which gave us a view from the mouth of the Thames to London. And then an air raid siren, called Weeping Willie by the men who tend it, began its uneven screaming. Down on the coast, the white puffed balls of anti-aircraft fire began to appear against a steel blue sky. The first flight of German bombers was coming up the river to start the 12-hour attack against London. They were high and not very numerous. The hurricanes and spitfires were already in the air, climbing for altitude above the nearby aerodrome. The fight moved inland and out of sight. Things were relatively quiet for about half an hour. Then the British fighters returned. And five minutes later, the German bombers, flying in V formation, began pouring in. The anti-aircraft fire was good, Sometimes it seemed to burst right on the nose of the leading machine, but still they came on. On the aerodrome, ground crews swarmed over those British fighters, fitting ammunition belts and pouring in petrol. 
As soon as one fighter was ready, it took the air, and there was no waiting for flight leaders or formation. The Germans were already coming back, down the river, heading for France. Up toward London, we could see billows of smoke fanning out above the river, and over our heads, the British fighters climbing almost straight up, trying to intercept the bombers before they got away. It went on for two hours, and then they all clear. We went down to a nearby pub for dinner. Children were already organizing a hunt for bits of shrapnel. Under some bushes beside the road, there was a baker's cart. Two boys, still sobbing, were trying to get a quivering bay mare back between the shafts. The lady who ran the pub told us that these raids were bad for the chickens, the dogs, and the horses. A toothless old man of nearly 70 came in and asked for a pint of mild and bitter, confided that he had always, all his life, gone to bed at 8 o'clock, and found now that three pints of beer made him drowsy-like, so he could sleep through any air raid. Before 8, the sirens sounded again. We went back to a haystack near the aerodrome. The fires upriver had turned the moon blood-red, the smoke had drifted down till it formed a canopy over the Thames. The guns were working all round us, the bursts looking like fireflies in a southern summer night. The Germans were sending in two or three planes at a time, sometimes only one, in relays. They would pass overhead, the guns and lights would follow them, and in about five minutes we could hear the hollow grunt of the bombs, huge pear-shaped bursts of flame, would rise up into the smoke and disappear. The world was upside down. Vincent Sheen lay on one side of me and cursed in five languages. He'd talk about the war in Spain. Ben Robertson of PM lay on the other side and kept saying over and over in his slow South Carolina drawl, London is burning, London is burning. It was like a shuttle service, the way the German planes came up the Thames the fires acting as a flare path. Often they were above the smoke. The searchlights bored into that black roof but couldn't penetrate it. They looked like long pillars supporting a black canopy. Suddenly all the lights dashed off and blackness fell right to the ground. It grew cold. We covered ourselves with hay. The shrapnel clicked as it hit the concrete road nearby and still the German bombers came. Early this morning, we went to a hotel. The gunfire rattled the windows. Shortly before noon, we rang for coffee. A pale, red-eyed chambermaid brought it and said, I hope you slept well, sirs. This afternoon, we drove back to the east end of London. It was like an obstacle race. Two blocks to the right, then left for four blocks, then straight on for a few blocks, and right again. Streets roped off, houses and shops smashed, a few dirty-faced, tow-headed children standing on a corner, holding their thumbs up, the sign of the men who came back from Dunkirk. Three red buses drawn up in a line waiting to take the homeless away, men with white scarves round their necks instead of collars and ties, leading dull-eyed, empty-faced women across to the buses. Most of them carried little cheap cardboard suitcases and sometimes bulging paper shopping bags. That was all they had left. There was still fire and smoke along the river, but the firefighters and the demolition squads have done their work well. Good night and good luck.
You've been listening to the London Calling Podcast, emanating from www.walks.com, home of London Walks, London's signature walking tour company, London's local, time-honored, fiercely independent, family-owned, just-the-right-size walking tour company. And as long as we're at it, London's multi-award-winning walking tour company. Indeed, London's only award-winning walking tour company. And here's the secret. London Walks is essentially run as a guides cooperative. That's the key to everything. It's the reason we're able to attract and keep the best guides in London. You can get schlubbers to do this for peanuts, for McDonald's wages, but you cannot get world-class guides, let alone accomplished professionals. It's not rocket science. You get what you pay for. And just as surely, you also get what you don't pay for. Back in 1968, when we got started, we quickly came to a fork in the road. We had to answer a searching question. Do we want to make the most money? Or do we want to be the best walking tour company in the world? You want to make the most money, you go the schlubber's route. You want to be the best walking tour company on the planet, you do whatever you have to do to attract and keep the best guides in London. You want them guiding for you, not for somebody else. Bears repeating, the way we're structured, a guides cooperative, is the key to the whole thing. It's the reason for all those awards. It's the reason people who know go with London Walks. It's the reason we've got a big following, a lively, loyal, discerning following. Quality attracts quality. It's the reason we're able, uniquely, to front our walks with distinguished professionals. By way of example, Stuart Purvis, the former editor and subsequently CEO of independent television news, and Lisa Honan, who had a distinguished career as a diplomat. Lisa was the governor of St. Helena, the island where Napoleon breathed his last and, some say, had his penis amputated. Napoleon didn't feel a thing if things the mot juste. He was dead. Stuart and Lisa, both of them CBEs, are just a couple of our headline acts. The London Walk's all-star team of guides includes a former London mayor. It includes barristers, one of them an MBE. It includes doctors, geologists, museum curators, archaeologists, historians, criminal defense lawyers, university professors, Royal Shakespeare Company actors, a bevy of MVPs, Oscar winners, people who've won the big one, the Guide of the Year Award. Well, you get the idea. As that travel writer famously put it, if this were a golf tournament, every name on the leaderboard would be a London Walks guide. And as we put it, London Walks guides make the new familiar and the familiar new. And on that agreeable note, come then, let us go forward together on some great London Walks. And that's by way of saying, good Londoning one and all. See you next time.